Welcome to TechnoSocial. My name is Daniel Fraga. And I'm Owen Cox. Here we're talking about all things shamanic, symbolic, occult, and technological. Consider becoming our patron, donating, and helping us continue to pump more of this weird and wacky content from the other side of reality all the way to the comfort of your own screen. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody. We are here with James Ellis, a.k.a. Meta Nomad of the Hermetics podcast. Um, James, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's great to have you on, man. I'm, uh, I discovered your show quite recently and I love the conversations. And what I found really cool is that there's, there's an overlap that is also something that Daniel and I have been exploring with our work, which seems to be this intersection between, say, um, an analysis of the state of where we are now and the future, often using the lenses of accelerationism, um, techno-capitalism, uh, but then also an interest in, in the occult mm-hmm. and in magic mm-hmm. and with perhaps what we might say non-rational, non-scientific ways of thinking and indeed interrelating with the world. Um, I wonder if I might ask, but just begin by asking you to explore in your own vision, what that overlap is? Uh, I made a Venn diagram recently, which is a sort of joke, but then I realized it's probably pretty spot on. So like the biggest percentage of my guests are sort of disgruntled academics who are like exploring stuff, which the academy just like, I don't think the academy is anti anything specifically, but as John Cusson said, like the academy really does work on fashion. Um, And philosophers have pointed this out for a long time. Like, We've been going on about the Marx Freud superhighway for like, man, like a long time, 60s, 70s. So, and it hasn't, it hasn't really budged. Um, You could throw a few more things in there, like phenomenology, Derrida, deconstruction, stuff like that. But it hasn't really budged too much, like at least in the the grand scheme of things. Um, So a lot of the, 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 the people I'm talking to um, are people who've literally spent their entire lives becoming experts in like a certain thinker or a certain movement and they are never going to get an opportunity to, to teach it on the level that you would if you studied like Derrida or Heidegger or something like that. So like uh, two recent conversations like Thomas Carlyle uh, and Joseph Demest. It's like those two scholars, as I understand it, I mean, they, they, they're probably, they are doing an incredible work, but they're not, you know, it's not getting the traction that I personally think it deserves. And then there's, there's even smaller thinkers like the episode on Ludwig, Ludwig Klagers, who like nothing of his has been translated like two books and two books and one of them is just completely out of print and he's a just an outstanding philosopher so there's all these thinkers out there that just basically if you don't really attend to them and try to make them accessible if people will just eventually stop studying them you just won't know anything about them um so there's that and I mean the, the occult thing is that the, a lot of those thinkers who are ignored basically have that overlap in that I don't think the academy wants to touch that stuff. 
the line between that is really, really fine, like really fine. Um, and I think even a lot of popular or well, well-known philosophers that can't be ignored, right? So Kant, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, um, a lot of the big names all commented on this stuff. Jung, Freud, all commented on, like they went over that line and said like, you know, we, we're taking occultism seriously. We're taking what that stuff is seriously. Uh, and the Academy won't, they'll really strip that away and won't comment on that. So those aspects of it, so everything which is basically underappreciated and ignored. And then there's also like the collapse theory side of things. And I think actually that ties it all together quite neatly and basically stuff that people just don't want to admit is going on, um, which is a cheap way of putting it. Um, and things that people don't want to admit are there basically. Um, so that's what it's become. That's what it's become. It's, it just slowly transforms. I sort of just go with what, whatever happens. Um, you know, I, I just, I made the podcast that I wanted to listen to. Like you can't make anything else. I don't really ever want to say like, Oh, it's for this audience because like, um, then you're just constraining yourself. So that's what it is. That's what medics is. Is there anything that you would particularly point out from your study of and, and engagement with these thinkers point out in terms of that line between philosophy and the occult of, of really what are the worthwhile things? What are the things that stand out in terms of this uh, interface? That, that line, like, as I said, it's, is really, really, really peculiar. Because there's people like, I recently interviewed Jeffrey Kripal, who wrote The Flip, which is one of these sort of, it's like, it's now got a second edition done by Penguin. Um, so, you know, this is something that's clearly very accessible, very big, um, but it makes it super, super accessible. And um, it toes the line in a really peculiar way. And it, I don't personally think that it took it as seriously as like philosophers would take it. So I think the line is, you can sort of like acceptable social etiquette is you can have the hardcore philosophy stuff. Like we're talking about metaphysics, epistemology. You can have like, you, you can have, Oh, you're interested in paranormal and, mm -hmm. you know, telepathy in a sort of quirky way. They, those are two accepted ways of doing things. But you can't mix the two. You can't be like, I seriously study telepathy um, as like, an actual study that seems to be where the line is that they don't want to because i think i think the thing is once you like all, all the like for instance one of the best examples is like precognitive dreams so you have a dream which then happens in the future and there's so much study on these recently so eric wargo talks about them in time loops um jeffrey kripal talks about them in the flip there's loads of other books coming out loads of research coming out loads of studies um basically these things are pretty pretty close to just being proved like yep we're all having precognitive dreams people who write them down begin to document them mm -hmm. and this is sort of derailing our conception of time because obviously it's like okay so we, we do just have this destiny or this fate or whatever that is just there um because obviously it's like saying well i know about the dream so i could change it but obviously you can't because there has to be something there which disallows you to do that so they just happen um and i guess i think i think the, the, the thing there is is well if we study this stuff as seriously as we do say epistemology how we know what we know uh, or the, the philosophical theories of time it's just going to ch absolutely change everything to the point where it's like a, you know einstein's breakthrough and you go right we need to rewrite everything um 
But I think actually, though, all those studies have been there. So Schopenhauer com comments on it uh, in relation to the will. And uh, he literally says, like, um, if te telepathy, we need to take telepathy seriously. We need to take parapsychological experiences seriously because these could fundamentally alter everything. And he took them seriously. Um, and Kant wrote about Swedenborg publicly denouncing him, but privately mm -hmm. really, like, found it really, really interesting. So I think that history is there, but it just doesn't want to be touched upon because then the entire studies, I think they become a, far more uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of other things have to be accepted. Um, and it's a lot easier to basically study philosophy in a constantly materialist framework, even if it, it apparently isn't. Like it's always materialist at the moment, it seems. Um, so, and I think, yeah, there's just some complications there that mm -hmm. academics don't really want to admit to. Um, but that's the thing of not being in the academy, do what you want. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you reckon that, um, because what I'm interested in, right, is when the occult becomes an integral part of the thought of certain people. What I mean by occult, it's, a, it's kind of this umbrella term. But if you look at, you know, two very distinct examples from on one side, Hegel speaking about the phenomenology of spirit and how mm -hmm. it manifests. Uh, if you look at the way that Heidegger talks about being in time, it sounds very Kabbalistic in a way. And if you look all the way down the spectrum to, to a guy like Nick Land, where all of these concepts are kind of an integral part, really, of, of the core concepts of, of their philosophical systems, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder what you think about that. Well, what tends to happen, um, the examples you give are all really good because different things happen with, with different philosophers. Heidegger, that the idea of concealment, that something is concealed and it reveals itself to you from the environment. Um, it's been a long time since I've seriously read Heidegger, so it's a bit rusty, but from, my, from, from what I remember, the idea is of a concealment and things are actually revealed to you. They're already there, but you have this process of revealing. And this is, um, to a certain extent, hermeticism. Uh, it's obviously occultism. Cult means hidden. Um, what I would say is that, let's take Heidegger specifically first, is that the language and the way that we view this language and what this actually signifies is altered. And it's not taught in the vein of, it's not taught in that way. Um, it's taught in a phenomenological way uh, and that alters it very quickly and very succinctly can alter it into a materialist thing, even if they don't want to admit it's materialist. Uh, we look at land. He made it so explicitly clear that these were his influences that it couldn't be avoided. Uh, but then obviously he's in completely frowned upon by everyone in the academy. So that's what happens there. Um, Hegel, like there is a book on Hegel and the Hermetic tradition, which I haven't read. And my Hegel's, my Hegel's pretty, pretty rusty, but like your Hegel, from what I see of Hegel is that fantastic meme where it's like two cinemas and one is Hegel. And then in the other one is like Zizek's Hegel, right? So really most people, it seems to know Hegel through Marx and Zizek. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with two materialist Hegels. Um, you're not going back to this primary source where there's, you know, the whole thing with uh, like the, the spirit of the three and the triad and the, the mysticism behind the triad. Um, and the other example I would give is Jung, Carl Jung, who like now it's so glaringly unavoidable that he was really talking about occultism and mysticism. And since that has been accepted since the publication of the Red Book, 
uh, and just basically accepting what was already there. He's just been pushed aside and not taken seriously. Like he was taken seriously when they could find an easy way to alter what it was he was on about. And now I think that's unavoidable. Um, just isn't taken seriously. Um, so really it's, it's just a means of always finding a way to retreat back to something they can teach, which isn't going to open people's two mind two minds too much that they might leave the Academy. Um, yeah, they have a system, which I think, you know, I don't, this isn't some big conspiracy, it's fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and if mysticism became fashionable but again, you might find that there's only, you might find that there's all these sort of Marxist materialists out of job who are, you know, feel just as sort of disgruntled as all the, the people who are working with, you know, Klagers and Jung, who don't get to talk about this stuff in, in, the, in the way that, you know, Marxist materialists do. Um, but I don't think this is like a political conspiracy. Um, mm. I think it's it's fashion, and it, I think the problem problem the problem with that kind of fashion is that it's sort of like compounding interest. So obviously, if you have the really big and great philosophers who are working in the Marxist current, uh, Jean Francois Lyotard, Sartre, Deleuze and Guattari, um, uh, Althusser, um, these are all the ones that we're then going to that are then going to influence the next generation, and it becomes increasingly more difficult to exit from that. Uh, that way of looking at things simply because they're there are big you know there are big names um but that's that's sort of the th everything becoming political problem again as well um but i don't i don't i just think it's fashion i think it's actually a fairly simple thing of just like mimesis fashion mm. let me throw a different take on it at you which um which i reach via the work of uh, of marshall McLuhan, mm -hmm. and so i say the the materialist paradigm of seeing the world and of relating to knowledge is about putting information, knowledge in a very third person objective perspective, right? It's like, it's out there and it's unchanging. It doesn't really matter what the effect on me as the observer, as a participant is, it's out there. We can all share in it. We can all understand mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. together. Whereas something more like mysticism or the occult it transforms your own way of being in the world. It transforms your perception. You don't like do magic in order to be able to recite to someone else the spell, right? You do it so that you actually feel something. It, it ideally gives you some form of new agency within, within the world. Now I bring up McLuhan because he had this idea that Western culture has essentially for over 2000 years being gradually transformed by our adoption of literacy and media technology that are based on the principles of literacy. So taking flows of information that originally existed in the environment and we would communicate them via, via oral speaking, which is like texture to it and ups and downs and volumes and putting it into, into a specifically visual code that was very fragmenty letters can you read from left to right across the page in a like uniform order and they stack down the page it fragments things, but also homogenizes them. And so mm -hmm. he thought that the actual, that bred a way of thinking about self and existence that was fragmentary, but homogenized. And so you can break knowledge down very easily into its component parts, flow through it. Everyone can flow through it in the same way. And crucially, once something's written down, it's true for all time on the page. Like we can both read the same thing and encounter the same 
the same the same truth essentially the truth the eternal unchanging truth the law of truth he would think well like, this is my way of interpreting him is actually a byproduct of the fact that we learn to write things down and so eternalize them through our own media consumption. Now, he thought that as we're going into digital, this whole literate way of relating to information breaks down and we end up in a paradigm that feels much more like the animistic paradigms of our very different distant ancestors, where literally we have these devices that are speaking to us and throwing images at us all the time in audio. It's like actual... All of a sudden, we're no longer in textual two dimensions anymore. And what I interpret from this is that this actually brings us back into a more first person way of interrelating with information and with media content. And so actually, in terms of our the core of our subjectivity, we are becoming more shamanistic, more animistic. And that is what gets me interested in what seems to be this resurgence of occult and mystical ideas, certainly not necessarily in the academy, but around the academy and in the emerging online subcultures. How does that play with you? Hmm. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one was um, every year I do like a prediction thread. Um, and I do it the either the December before the year or January. One for 2020 was the resurgence of alternative spiritualities, which at that point was fairly obvious. Um, but then you, you saw a massive rise in like Satanists this year and people actually going to like the Satanist church, massive rise in Gnosticism and Hermeticism and just a general, like the whole TikTok thing with the young witches and like basically the, the idea that that stuff's becoming really public. Um, and I think that is to do with the first thing you were saying, which is to do with a a frustration at what Michel Serre would call the empire of science. Everything has been invaded by the empire of science, right? It's like, you can't just have, um, I always give the example of a cup of coffee. Um, you can't just have a cup of coffee. Like it has to be, you know, there's like 400 different descriptors of what this coffee is like. So, you know, as you're saying with the writing, you know exactly what you're having. Um, the sense experience is already like captured by the empire of signs and it's done. Um, but that's just not how things are. Right. And that's sort of how I think about occultism. Um, and that's how sort of John Michael Greer has explained occultism to me, which is what made it click for me, which is um, when you're talking about senses, uh, this is more Michel said, when you're talking about senses, you're already, there's already an implicit paradox there that you can't talk about senses. You sense senses, you can't talk about them. And it's the problem of language, the problem of science is that, um, you know, it's like describe the smell of a rose. You, 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 you could write books and books and books, literally hundreds of books on the smell of one rose, but it's, it's, it's never going to be able to uh, have a like pure symbiosis where it's one on one exact, because it's not, it's just two different levels of communication. One, one is level of your sensory input, that which, and the other is, is language. And, and of course, you could say, oh, that's sensory input because you're reading it, but the way in which it's processed is entirely different. Uh, and that's what I think it is for, for occultism, which is why once you become, as you say, like Marshall McLuhan said, once you become beholden to the, the, the empire of signs, as Sarah would say, or to the, the, like, the homogenization of language in that everything should be uh, described or signified, um, many of the occult experiences which people have on a daily basis and when people when when obviously when i mentioned this people are thinking like oh i'm not seeing demons every day it's like no 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 um i'm talking about the kind of experiences which is like um 
I don't know, a, a common one I always think is like you're driving down the road and you have an overwhelming feeling that you should slow down or something along these lines, or um, you go to a new place and you, you walk into a bit of the woods and you get an eerie feeling that you shouldn't be there. Um, and these sort of, you know, obviously science and scientism would come in and say, oh, you know, it's your gut flora, gut reactions you learn over time. But I don't think that really explains anything at all. Um, in fact, I think most scientific actually explains nothing. Um, you know, it's all just atoms moving. Okay, great. Like, <laughs> you've, you've basically just said nothing at all there. Uh, not that I have a problem with science, but it needs to stay in its lane. Um, so these experiences, you know, these are things we go, well, once they're written down, they have to be explained via a certain filter of um, logic and reason, which applies to that form of language, um, which just doesn't always work. Um, because... I think, I think I think to a certain extent you're really working on a different spatiotemporality, and specifically you're working in a different form of time. Um, so there's this there's an example which Jeffrey Kripal likes to give, which is the example of um, wow, I forgot his name. He wrote um, Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain. Mark Twain. So Mark Twain, you know, staunch atheist. Um, I'm not sure if he was a materialist, but atheist didn't believe in all that stuff. Um, later on in his life, he has a precognitive dream, super, super vivid, that his brother dies and he goes to the funeral. And it's so vivid that when he wakes up after the dream, he puts his funeral suit on and is about to leave and his brother's like, where are you going? Um, oh, no, 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 someone else. His brother's miles away. Someone else says, oh, where are you going? He's going to my brother's funeral. Um, and then he writes him a letter, finds out he's still alive, but then like a week later, his brother dies and the exact dream plays out. So like Mark Twain at this point is like the biggest writer in America, but he doesn't want to say this happened because obviously it sort of goes against everything that he's been pushing in terms of science and belief, blah, blah, blah. The point is that I, you know, there's a one point there that even people sort of just Mark Twain are having these experiences. But the other point I've taken there from that is, well, in what way is that experience going to be explained if you write it down? Um, I think as soon as you're doing that, you're sort of striating, striating it to a certain form of logic, which is in what you might call the inside, but it's certainly not in whatever the space is, which is, I don't know, it's gonna sound really cheesy, but dream space, you know, it's just two different forms of communication, two different forms of language, um, and two different forms of logic. And I don't think that the communication works because you, you're entering into a different form of time. You're entering into linear time. As soon as you start saying like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Um, I think you, the experience is always gonna be changed. So there's always that difficulty of like, you 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 know a lot of you hear a lot of people say like oh, i just had this weird experience you know there's not really much more you can say and obviously science science hates that because uh, it can't test that but um it you know i think the, the, the point to make which science would obviously go oh yeah of course you're gonna say that which is the their means of testing is just entirely different in terms of the the levels of communication uh, and the and the forms of logic so it's just never going to be able to really uh, apprehend it as it wants to. It's very interesting. Um, while perhaps maybe science isn't the isn't so inclined to test out and, and flesh out these hypotheses, I would argue that if you look at uh, techno capitalism and how fast it has, uh, you know, accelerated this consumption and striating of dream space into images into uh, com commodities right i would argue that that's 
kind of the most pressing and immediate manifestation of the occult in, in everyday life other than dreams, meaning that it just recuperates the occult time and again, coming from the dream space of the creative down to the, uh, to the letters on a page, right? Letters on a page, which are also kind of a technological, technological way to try to emulate the timelessness of the other time mm -hmm. that, that is perhaps accessed during by people like you mentioned that the moment when we begin to speak about such things is precisely the moment when they become already recuperated into this human world into the world of techno capitalism of striation if you will um so what would you say to the idea that you know technology is an autonomous intelligence that has been in a co-evolution process with us humans ever since uh, ever since we first uttered a word or we put a sign on the wall of a cave or even started to do agriculture because I, I it feels like that's kind of the core the, the, the most interesting core of what land speaks about is really the 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 admission and the realization without any, without beating around the bush that yes, there is an alien order of time. There is an alien order of intelligence and we are cooperating with it. We have co-evolved with it. It's really indistinguishable from ourselves. Even when we speak about what we feel ourselves, we are already, always already uh, being kind of recuperated into it. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge question. Um, and I think it touches on a lot of things. It touches on desire. Um, and I think to a certain extent that the language philosophers are using in terms of desire is really this, con this concealed thing, which is we can't really work out why it's driving us and why we'd want these certain commodities, as you'd say. Um, and what, you know, I think, think um, I always like the idea of thinking about transactions, like a monetary transaction. Um, and I think it's a really interesting way to explain like the phenomenology of capitalism and what's actually going on in a transcendental sense is that you have, you have material phenomena, objects, uh, let's just say cash or even like a, you know, a card or whatever, certain, certain approximations of movements on a phenomenological level of a, like a piece of card, which is just a bit of phenomena touching this machine, which then abstractly and like transcendentally moves the value of whatever this object is over to this other person. And we understand this on a phenomenological, phenomenological level. Like I now have the item and I have the receipt and like digits moved from my account to a different account, the business's account. Um, and on a phenomenological level, like something's happened there, but on a transcendental level, like what is happening there is super interesting because something's being concealed, but there is some form of intelligence somewhere, which is understanding that there's, there is some form of value being made. Um, and that value is sort of in relation to us, but also in relation to a system, which just wants more value. Uh, and that piece of value has been moved. Um, so this is what land means by metric and diagrammatic. So like metrically on the inside phenomena, you know, digits have moved, which are just phenomena. But diagrammatically, a schematic is sort of being drawn on the outside transcendentally, which is mapping out something for the intelligence, something for capital as an intelligence to understand. Like, oh, that's been purchased. So that means something, right? Um, yeah, and I think um, 
I think thinking of capitalism actually as an intelligence in that way is, is really helpful because it is learning. Um, and and, and, and the, the, the more and more AI is introduced, the, the more and more worrying it gets. I mean, I'm on the, the side of like, I think we need a term for like, probably just call it shitty AI or like dirty AI. Um, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. But oh, I, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, shitty AI. But like, I think we're going to like the whole sort of almost thesis of, of zero accelerationism is we are going to get this future, but you need to remember that things go back down to zero and we, ne- we, we just have never got the, you know, we got electric cars and they're either really expensive or they don't really charge very well or they're just not, they're just not what we wanted, right? So like, you know, I love the example of Musk's future truck, right? That's the future we've had since the 60s. A boxy truck with like Halo 1 warthog wheels. It looks like PS1 graphics. And it's like, but we've had that future in fiction for years and years and years. And we finally get it. And it's, it's so disappointing because it's not the future. We've already had that. Um, so they're just recuperating few ideas of what the future is in the past. Um, and that's, that's the, the future we get. And we get that and it's just kind of crap. And I think the same thing will be with, with, with AI that, you know, it's like sort of Google maps is the AI that we've got at the moment. And it, all it does is sort of avoid traffic jams. So, well, that's not really like the best <laughs> future. Um, same with like automated checkouts. It's like you invent the car, you invent the car crash. I was writing about this yesterday. It's the yeah, automated, automated checkouts, uh, which your self-service checkouts are great, um, but not enough people lose their jobs for a UBI to be introduced. So all that happens is a load of people lose their jobs. Um, and then you actually start to realize, hang on, I'm now basically working for the store. Uh, and I think that will be, that'll be like the next norm. There won't be cashiers. You know, I mean, that's a really boring for like the, the boring future, right? Like, oh, what's the future going to be like? You just do your own shopping. That's, <laughs> that's the, the crap future is things that things along those lines where they can just sort of get one over on you. Um, sorry, I've sort of digressed from the question. But yeah, capitalism as, as an AI is, a, is an interesting way to think about it. And I think it's an important way to think about it because it does seem to be self-developing. Um, and, you know, for as far as I can see, we seem to be being pulled by it more than we're pulling it. Um, and it has been that way for a long time. Um, and of course, there's all, all the philosophical theory behind this in terms of nonlinear time in relation to if capitalism is a transcendental in- intelligence, it's not beholden to linear time. Um, and we're just puppets in a sort of mm-hmm. theater of pure time. Um, but I think I've spoken about that to death. So, yeah. But you say that um, not only is and moving autonomously through us across what we call in your history but would you say that maybe also intelligence uh, intelligence itself is also doing that role in other words can we and should we distinguish between capitalism and intelligence and sign and meaning making and talking and technology or um i mean that is a big question and i think that's probably mm-hmm. the question that land is trying to answer um but you know, and this is something that I think collapse theorists avoid. Um, the, the question of the future is a question of intelligence and where, where intelligence ends up. Um, because intelligence threshers, where, we're, where more intelligence is being produced, it, uh, are sort of homogenizing and they're tightening up in smaller places and everything else ends up in sort of just this vacuum of just 
almost like just disorder. It's just like there isn't a focus. Um, and I don't think this is, you know, this isn't some political decision. I think it's probably a subconscious decision of intelligence, pe intelligent people to go where there's more intelligence or where there's more intelligent things happen. So it's like, you know, the most, some of the most intelligent people on the earth are all going to Silicon Valley, for instance, and buying into all their, um, their bullshit gimmicks, which they're always producing. My favorite one, by the way, I'll just short digression. Um, Silicon Valley is now has this gimmick called raw water. Have you heard of this? No, they're, they're drinking just water from a stream and they think they're like, it costs them so much. Like there's people who sell raw water. So yeah, well done. Well, well done for doing something we did like, you know, thousands we've done forever. Anyway, that's, that's the height of intelligence. Unfortunately, is that you, you buy into the, the fads. Um, but in terms of, you know, intelligence in relation to signs and signification, I think they are the same thing. You know, that's what language is, is, you can have language which is extremely compressed. I mean, I can't, I can't read um, Chinese, but it's a super efficient language. So when you're talking about intelligence, um, you're talking about complexification and what you can do in terms of signs, signification, and intelligence. How you can like simplify something which is extremely complex. Um, so, the, you know, this is why I think. The, the, the collapse theorists sort of avoid intelligence because I think it's a touchy subject. But ultimately, if you have a, a resource limit and you have the exact same form of intelligence and the exact same form of innovation, nothing, you can't really ever do anything with that limit. So it's like, yeah, we know we've got limited resources, um, but the latest sort of innovation with regards to that, say sailing, is we're basically bringing back sailing ships. They prototype these sailing ships where the, the, the sails are now these basically, they're as big as old sails, but they are, they're like plastic. Like imagine you've cut an oil drum in half and then it's just this huge plastic thing. They look horrible. Um, the same thing applies like solar panels is a good instance. Uh, and someone actually sent something to me the other day about the Toyota Hilux, you know, that first like, oh, this is super eco-friendly all the things they had to do to the Toyota Hilux to make it eco-friendly actually increased its carbon footprint in relation to if they just developed a normal mm -hmm. car. Uh, and the same thing applies for, for solar panels. Cause people go, Oh yeah, we've got a solar panel. It's so, you know, so eco-friendly. They are tight. Like they are constraining their, the solar panel simply to when they received it, they need to think about like resource extraction, shipping all the resources from all these different places in the globe where these rare, rare metals are like neodymium, dynium, uh, I can't remember the other one, super, super rare. Also, as these minerals get more and more rare, there's increased extraction costs. So by the time you've got a solar panel, they say, oh, 30 years to pay for itself. But in terms of carbon footprint, it's probably going to be about 100 years before it is actually doing what it's supposed to do in terms of mm -hmm. green energy. Uh, and this is the same for most sustainable forms. So basically what my point with this is, is that our current sort of level of intelligence is still reliant on the limited resource to be able to make something which apparently is sustainable. So we're still reliant on fossil fuels. Um, and I think this is actually the problem for collapse theorists is that, and this is where for me collapse and accelerationism meet. And this is like, this is where the time pressure is, is you have a limited resource and you have a, uh, should we say, a positive feedback loop which will not stop 
capitalism. Capitalism wants what it wants exactly the same. Someone wrote it really funny the other day. You know, you have iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Someone wrote iPhone, like N, is it N plus? So just constant interest. That's capitalism, right? It's just iPhone infinity, like just on and on and on. That isn't going to stop. The resource limit is just going to keep going down. So what can allow these things to have at least a, a longer symbiosis? And it's greater intelligence because you need something or someone or some group which has a, a more innovative way to utilize those resources to continue the stupid trajectory. Or you find a way to stop this trajectory. But of course, the accelerationist outlook is that trajectory will subsume anything which tries to stop it back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that problem. So on the one hand, you have like this thing can't be stopped because to stop it, it will find a way to commodify you stopping it. Uh, Anonymous is a good example. Extinction Rebellion is a good example. Greta Thunberg is a good example. All these things get commodified into these, these, you know, um, veganism is a, is a fantastic example of, you know, they all eat their avocados in the UK, but actually avocado is probably the single worst uh, <laughs> output for like carbon usage because one, they can only grow in certain climates and then they actually need to be put on trains, which are air cooled uh, or flights obviously so by the time you've got an avocado you've probably done the equivalent of killing however many polar bears or whatever um but avocados are tasty so you know who cares um so you have that everything's subsumed into that and then you have like you have limited resources uh and then of course you have the people who say like oh peak oil is not true Uh, okay well if peak my problem has never been with peak oil um there's a law called Liebig's law which is you don't need to worry about how much of all the resources you have to build something you need to worry about the, what, the resource which has the smallest amount left. Um, so if you have five, you need five resources to build an iPhone, what's the one which you hardly have anything, any left, right? And this is, this is the problem which seems to, to not be tackled. Like I just, you know, maybe, maybe someone needs to send me some stuff to do with engineering and, and sort of production. But as far as I can see, it's not, you know, plastic is a key example. When you look at plastic, that's oil. Uh, that's what you need to think is oil. And I don't know how much of it's actually being recycled. Uh, a lot of it's just going to garbage disposal. I mean, we all know these things, but when you sort of open, you, and, and there's really obvious like alternatives. So for instance, in the supermarket with meat, it's like it's all packaged in plastic with like, you know, you take off the saran wrap and then the package just goes in the bin. So well, why not just use paper with a bit of tape? You know, it's really obvious things which we were doing um and then the, you know i could go off into a massive tangent about how the hygiene standards have actually caused more problems but yeah it is a problem of intelligence which is an internal problem of innovation or the avoid round you need to be more innovative with or we just need to stop thinking about things in a stupid way but yeah i've really digressed mm. there no but, but that's a that's a very interesting point because let me just throw this to you um the occult point of view is that mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, Carl Jung says this, a lot of people say this, that people don't really have the ideas. People are not the agents in this relationship. People are not the ones choosing what they do. The intelligence is, is, is utilizing people being channeled into material reality from elsewhere through people. So we are kind of conduits for autonomous intelligence processes that obviously have scaled not only its just power whatever it wants, but also killed the amount of humans that are alive at any given point. And so 
if if I switch this 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 little subject object relation and throw it back to you and ask you something mm -hmm. like uh, uh, if it's not really the people at the steering wheel if it's actually a you know in the best case symbiotic relationship in the worst case parasitical relationship mm -hmm. between the intelligence and us then then what, what would change in your analysis right w would it change anything Oh, no, I agree. I agree. Like, I do agree with you that that is how intelligence works. And that's what I wrote about in which is now a book, Accelerationism, Capitalism's Critique. Uh, and there's plenty of names for this. Once again, something I think that's been avoided um, in the studies, uh, in general studies. Kant calls it genius. You know, genius comes in from the outside. Uh, uh, Nietzsche says, I think to paraphrase Nietzsche, he says, uh, people don't want to admit that the, I didn't have the idea. The idea had me. Um, and then obviously Land takes this, the idea of actually communing his work through other things. Um, so that leads one to the question of like, how do you, yeah, how do you open yourself as like a conduit to the outside, right? How do you commune? Um, uh, which is, you know, that's a huge question and it's just tough to answer. I mean, what the CCRU tried to do was extremely experimental methods, you know, from the boroughs, like time sorcery, cut up techniques, things like this, things which begin to destroy the narrative in the sense that the transcendental information that's coming in is altered and you begin to see things in this new perspective. Um, but of course, there's like, there's this weird stagnance and something I talked to Matt Cahoon about, which is if you think about time in terms of the eternal return, it's just a return of like originally this return of the same, everything returns again. That's the Nietzschean outlook. And then Deleuze takes this and like, the, the the circle gets or the circle gets cut which then means it like spirals off so it's a spiral uh and that is i i personally think that really just maps onto intelligence so the greater intelligence the tighter this spiral gets and at the end would i would just argue that you know what's the point of the spiral is the big accelerationist question for land i said that's the intelligence explosion i would say um i think there's sort of been a glitch in the transcendental intelligence in that we're just stuck it's like the iPhone thing. Our form of intelligent innovation is a new iteration of the past. And it isn't new. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck. The future is stuck in the past. Um, and this is Heideggerian as well. You know, the whole idea of like pushing the, pushing the, what is it? Pushing the past in front of you and the future being the behind you. So, the, so yeah, so the future is actually pushing you in. So it's like, oh, wow, we can finally talk to each other. You know, I always used to make me laugh when boomers say, they you say, oh, we finally got, I remember when phones where you could like FaceTime, you know, so you're actually talking to each other on the screen. And they first sort of, that was really accessible. And I remember someone from the boomer generation, not that I have a problem with the boomers, someone from the boomer generation said, oh, I remember seeing this on Star Trek and thinking it's an absolute like fantasy in a dream. It's like, well, it obviously isn't. It was on Star Trek. Like you'd already made it real. That, just because it isn't a material reality, you have made that thing real. Like that idea is now in play and that's hyperstition. Like the whole point of anything that becomes real, there's a, you can look back in history, there's a fiction there before it. Um, which is why I think it's, whenever I read a fiction book, which is really close to reality or just a bit off like Ballard or Neil Stevenson, whenever they write something that I'm like, Oh, that's terrifying. I sort of want to ring them up and say, can you destroy your book? Because you've already, you've, 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 that, that, that idea is now in play. Like you have to be careful with what fictions you come up with because obviously fiction's the thing which is going to influence reality. So, you know, nothing else does. Um, 
everything everything which is like, like was once a dream was of course once a fiction first so like flying cars and you know at some some point there'll be a flying car and it'll be an absolute gas guzzler but people say oh we dreamed of the you know this is an absolute fantasy well, it's not a fantasy you wanted to make it real you like immunitized it into the culture and it's now like in there that's what everyone thinks yes. of the future and that's the problem of frontiers which i really like talking about which is leotard's idea of a frontier like or a, maybe think of a wall if you have a wall and you know what's on the other side of it, and you can actually think about this in terms of the future, like the fiction is on one side of the wall and you're like, how do we get to the real? Well, the wall is not even real. If you know what's on the other side of a frontier or a wall, it's not really a wall anymore because you already have it. And I think that the problem with genius and the problem with being like possessed parasitically by intelligences, that's something which gives you a true frontier, a true frontier of, I actually don't know where this is going. And I think that's sort of an accelerationist position is you need a frontier where you're, it's true. Like it's pure frontier. We actually really don't know what this is going to do. But I think that of course is like an irrational thing because you'd end up developing technology. You don't even know like what you, you know, what are you developing? Like we don't even know. We're just, just doing shit. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of sort of what else to say on that thing, but um, Yeah. Do you know what's coming to mind for me now? I'm starting to think about utopias and how utopias have played into political thought because, again, that seems to fit your model of, like, well, if there's a wall but we know what's behind the wall, then the wall isn't really there. But then mm. utopian political projects have notoriously failed and we seem to be living in this traumatic state now where we're almost too afraid to actually have anything like a a political vision that goes beyond the next six months or five years. Yeah. You know, there's this, it's like we, we, we tried utopia and that didn't work. So we were like, okay, let's just not think about the future at all. Let's just have political movements that are basically like the general gist of it is let's have a bit less bad, you know, let's just rein it in a bit. Let's extinction rebellion. Let's uh, black lives matter. Like uh, uh. we've got some problems. Let's just chill it down a bit and we'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, Hans Hermann Hoppe is great on this. This is time preference problem of democracy, as far as I can see. And the time preference problem of democracy is um, democracy disallows a high time preference. If you have a high time preference, you're thinking hundreds and a sensible situation, a sensible civilization, sorry, thousands of years in the future. You're thinking like, you know, what, what am I, how is this going to affect my great, 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 great grandkids, right? That's how you should think. Democracy, Western liberal democracy, whatever the form of democracy we've got, just absolutely decimates time preference. So it's so unfathomably low, you can't get anything done. Because as soon as people begin to say, I want this, I want that, you can't get people to agree what they want in the far future. So people just begin to vote for immediacy. And everyone who's been alive for more than, say, like 16 years, you know, anyone who's over... 21 understands that the four years that someone's in government isn't it you could, it's just stupid it's just absolutely stupid you can't do anything in that time and it's just low time preference so what you have to do that four-year period also decreases time preference because they know they don't have long enough to do anything high time preference because they've only got four years you, there's, there's no sort of massive overhauls of Western civilization or nation state that you can do in four years. There isn't. So they need to bolster their popularity and status as a political party. So they need to focus on extremely low time preference things. So like, oh, you know, and that 
in turn means you become beholden to whatever the popular fashionable movement is of the time. So you just end up following the whims of mimesis. So it's like, yeah, we support this two month thing. And this in turn is also absolutely frying everyone's attention spans. You know, I wrote that piece a while back where it's like, you know, like Corona is crazy now and Black Lives Matter was crazy. But you remember when we were in Brexit and that was like the only thing that ever existed for about a year, but now that's gone. And at, at the time that was everything. Um, and then there was like after Brexit, there was Extinction Rebellion for like two months and that was everything. Then there was Greta Thunberg and that was everything. And it's like, no, next thing, next thing, next thing. And nothing links. It's just like one present and they're just attached from each other. Um, and you know, that's, that's, I think the realization of that is why I'd say either focus on local areas or focus on the individual yourself, not in an egoist way, but in like the, the way of the anarch and just like step back, notice that that's going on and think, well, actually this, this whole system doesn't really work in that way. So I'm just going to, I'm going to focus on what I can affect personally. Um, because the whole thing you, you, you mentioned, you know, people trying to be good. It's like, well, I, I agree with what you're saying. People are trying to be good, but it's, I think what people are trying to really do is appear to be good, not actually be good. Uh, to be a good person is to actually make quite a few sacrifices. Like, you know, uh, the sort of comfy middle-class lifestyle, they want to go out and sh- make it, clear that they're you know no one wants to do something good and not be seen right so there was a brilliant video of that instagrammer i don't you know i don't know who his name must be some famous instagrammer like pulled up at after a protest where someone was like repairing a building got out asked the guy to hold his drill someone took a picture of her and then they just got in the car and drove off and i think that's like the perfect metaphor of what a lot of sort of virtue is i think is it's not true virtue you just want to be seen that you're virtuous and i think the, the i think they're actually two ends of the spectrum um i don't think you're really going to hear about good people because they're they're doing good things and they're just like getting on with it uh and i think you uh, a certain level really goodness comes from what you can affect locally it's sort of like donating to a charity and i don't really know how i feel about charities but it's to you know why not put that energy and money into something that you truly, you know, a local cause or something along these lines. There's this weird thing where it feels like we're almost pressured towards performativity. Like I saw this news story a couple of weeks ago about, um, what's his name? John Boyega, the, the black actor in the new Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Right? And he came up, obviously he's been quite involved with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And he was saying something along the lines of how, he felt like actually in those Star Wars movies, he was just there to be the token black guy and wasn't given that much lines. And it's like, of course you were fucking there to be the token black guy. That is what you were in the movie. Like, but him, first of all, a few years ago, he went in as the token black guy and that was his performance of being the black guys now in Star Wars. And now he's coming out and saying, I was put there as the token black guy. That's also the performative thing that you have to say now in the Black Lives Matter movie is to critique again and say, I was pushed into that role. And so... Yeah, but the same, same you know, the same applies for like Ray in that film. Just mm. that they, they, it's the same thing I see with companies who support... Uh, whatever the cause is, it doesn't matter what the cause is. It could be LGBT, it could be Black Lives Matter, it could be Extinction Rebellion. Um, it's whether the sincerity is there. And I think for, for those films, I couldn't see how you would think otherwise because I don't think the characters were particularly well written. They were written well enough to be like a trope. It's like, yeah, we've got an independent woman. But how independent is the woman going to be if you just put her there 
to make the point that you've put an independent woman there, right? Um, and the shows that have done done realistically well, how how that could play out, and, and you know, I like your point that he's he sort of accepted that. Um, but you know, in in what sense can you say any of that is sincere if if it it, it bends on a whim, right? There's just constantly. If enough people say that we should be doing something, then companies will start doing it. Um, and I think if you could get enough people behind a movement, it would be interesting to see if you could just sort of make one up and see what companies, you know, go on the bandwagon. Like, I don't know, like, let's just say, like, day for blue people or something. You know, get enough people to do that. How many companies would sort of change their, change their, because it's, you know, like I said, it's just a, it's a, it's a I don't want to fall into that sort of, uh, the rhetoric of, that type of thing, but it is a signal of, of virtues. Like we're with you, we're popular. And it's just her to think. Um, and I'm in agreement with those who'd say that, you know, Nietzsche critiqued religion because it was the predominant means of control, or not controlling or whether or not you believe in religion, whatever, but altering and controlling people's thoughts of the day. It was the big thing, right? But I'm in, in agreement with those who say that if Nietzsche was alive now, he would be cr- critiquing democracy and leftism because that is the default position. Um, and, you know, I think that, that that's the problem that we have is it's the default. Um, but there's no, there's just nothing of substance there because it moves so quickly. Uh, but everything else has moved into that, has been pulled in. Um, so for instance, I always find it funny that conservatives' positions change. It makes no sense to me. If you're conserving something, surely your position just just, just never change right? That's the whole point is that you have these values. You just have values. And you're, these are the right values. Whether or not you agree or disagree with conservatism, you know, and I know people is all memed, what are the conservatives conserving? But they've been pulled into that idea that they need to sort of keep up. But they don't. That's the whole point is they, they shouldn't be keeping up. So, you know, I think, I think that there's an undercurrent in all politics that is mimetic and fashionable that they need to make it clear that they're still part of the way of being like, you know, they're hip or whatever. Mm. Which is, yeah. Given that we're talking about politics now and you touched briefly on the topic of the anarch already, mm-hmm. I wonder if I could just <laughs> like you to expand on that a bit more. Cause I know you talk about it a bunch in your podcast, right? Like what is the anarch and why is it a response to where we're at? The anarch, so the anarch is uh, a theory. Well, not a theory, I guess it's a position almost like a non-position by uh, the writer Ernst Jünger, uh, first put forth in his book, uh, Oymersville, and then again in the Forest Passage. Start with the Forest Passage, it's the quickest and clearest one. I think it's like 80 pages or something like that. You get through it really quickly, it's well written. Ernst Jünger is one of the, just a great writer. Um, but you have the Anarch, uh, Jünger's, uh, and then you have the Anarchist. Um, to start with the Anarchist, which we all know and love or whatever, <laughs> uh, the Anarchist, sees the ongoings in the world, the protests, the marches, the events, thinks their thoughts and gets involved, gets in there, gets subsumed into whatever this fashionable mimetic movement is that's going on at the time. Um, That's the anarchist. The anarch does the same thing, sees the, well, not exactly the same, big difference, sees what's going on, sees this mimetic spiral, thinks its thoughts, writes down whatever, and then moves back, steps back and realizes just isn't the anarch. That's, and I like the fact it finishes there, you know, the, um, 
the monarch to the monarchist, the anarch is this like sovereign individual who is outside that pull. So just sees the, the cycle of history. And I think a great way of really describing the anarch is it isn't someone who wants to, to push against history because they know what happens if you push against history. So I always would say like, you know, in the Bible, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It's like, don't push too hard against modernity because you know what's going to happen. So the anarchist is, is, is almost sort of, it's like a dog teasing its owner while on the lead. Right. Um, and sure, you know, it's a very pessimistic outlook in a certain way that if the dog just behaves and behaved well and kept its head down and render unto Caesar, eventually you'll be let off the lead and you'll have a much more freedom. And then you'll realize that more of the freedom is your own mentality with regards to your situation. And, you know, pushing against it, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. And I think it's more about the mentality of exit and freedom than the actual physical embodiment of it. Um, and the anarch is, is the encapsulation of that. Um, and it's someone who, to a certain extent, in a very sort of cheesy way of saying it, is outside Hegelian history, doesn't abide by that. I think abide by cyclicity. Jünger was big on, you know, sort of Toynbee or um, Spengler cyclicity of history. Um, it's people who realize that history is due to the fact that there is a herd history is going to move in these cycles. And the, the, the anarch is, is a, I wouldn't say they're egoist. They're a sovereign individual who, um, who step, you know, takes, takes that step back and goes across a certain border wherein politics is no longer seen as it is. You're not a, you're not a part, you're not a cognate. Um, you're an outside observer. And Jung does make it clear that this, brings a lot of alienation, uh, solitude, uh, potentially loneliness. But what comes from it is a, is a greater freedom, which I think is well worth it. And he does also make it clear that the Anarchs project is almost sort of, is almost like a failure already. But I think to actually accept the, the potential of a failure is a really important thing to do, uh, especially in relation to capitalism, because capitalism doesn't want you to accept that there's failure it wants success and it wants uh lacks to be filled if you if you you know todd mcgowan i was talking to him recently um, an interview of him it's coming up on a mythic soon but his like attack against capitalism is a really interesting one that in there he that he says what you need to do is accept that the desire won't fulfill you before you even act on it so it's like that, you know, accept the failure of desire before you do it. And you sort of are beating capitalism in that way because you're like, oh, this car, you know what? This car's not going to fulfill my desire and accept that failure. And then it turns into something else altogether. Don't buy into that. Um, and I think that's sort of, sort of the same thing with politics is that that political outlook is, is not talking for you. You know, how can any political outlook, which represents 50% of the population, speak to you personally? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Is there the possibility for small numbers of anarchs to gather together and attempt to engage in some kind of local, perhaps even digital political action, or maybe not even political action, but some kind of forward moving, creative, utopian, protopian action? Or would that already inherently betray the idea of being an anarch? Mm. I don't think it would betray it unless you sort of collectively said, oh, we are one anarch, in which case it would. Um, I think you'd actually be moving towards Moldbug's patchwork there um, because Moldbug's, uh, you know, heavily inspired by this idea of the anarch and by the book uh, Amishville by Jünger. So I think he would, you know, I think patchwork would be what you're talking about there in that 
enough people who are on a certain spectrum are close enough to say, right, a couple of thousand of us have found as close as possible little state, nation state um, or group or whatever, and, and we're going to reside here. I guess, you, you know, I think the point would be is that it's the Anarchs to sit very clear decision to be part of that and also to consistently remember that they can leave it and also to sort of step back and realize that that nation state won't last forever. It's part of the big cycles of the cosmos and of history. And, you know, you just could, you know, you're still an anarch. It's the same thing as saying, you know, you might be working a shitty retail job or you might be in the academy. You can still be an anarch because I think it's important to emphasize that it's a, it's a mentality and not a physical existence. So you could group up, but you just have to retain something, retain that mm. nature. Hi all. At this point, Daniel's mic started having some weird sound issues and he also had a bit of a connectivity difficulty. We've left the rest of the conversation in, but if it's too painful to listen to, then no worries. Catch you on the next one. Well, if you want a big question, I haven't prepared here. Uh, you okay. mentioned something like low time preference, uh, <laughs> being sort of this this thing that is endemic to capitalism, to democracy, to really looking at the. the is the sort of overarching preference of, of you know high time preference, meaning the larger span of things. Mm-hmm. I call it end time preference. And so what this rhymes with for me is, is the idea of the eternal return of the same, which is very Nietzschean. Alexander Barth calls it, or, or kind of adopts the Deleuzean concept of nomadology, and says that when we were nomads way back, time was cyclical. It was a time of the seasons, of the planet, of this sort of uh, baseline technological system called the seasons and nature in the world. Um, but then something changed, which was the the birth of monotheism in Zoroaster and then in Judaism and Christianity. And what they have in common is this eventology. There was an event and time changed forever. From now on, we are moving towards the end time, right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of a, a birth of linear time or of that, of that eschatologically pulled um, sort of end time characterization of how time works. Um, that we've been having around capitalism and accelerationism and and where it's going towards because it does feel right that you mentioned that leftism is the default position I would even go further than that and say that eventology is the default position the idea that there's a good that we need to move towards like you kind of alluded to that when you said that when you were talking now about desire right it feels like this Zizekian uh, way to talk about you know, the imperative to enjoy. It feels like eventologically in, in the world where people are monotheistic, where their psyches have perhaps an ego and, and a reason, and there is such a thing as an I, as an individual. It feels like that's kind of a deeper imperative. And so which frames us here and now, but also frames kind of a larger span of history, it frames an eschatology almost, right? That's, that's what accelerationism is for me. It's a theory of, of salvation or collapse. It's judgment day. Um, how does this? How does this sound to you? Well, collapse is still an end. It's still an eschatology. It's still a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a Deleuzean sense, you could say that they're both just intensities. So they're both still positive. Uh, this is just a certain, certain um, 
difference in, I guess, aesthetic. Um, in terms of time preference, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The, the, I like what you said about the, the seasons change because it's basically technological society which has constrained us to even be able to live in the way that we do. Like we don't, with the seasons don't matter anymore. Uh, when the sun rises, when the sun sets, does not matter because of the way we've used certain resources. Uh, you know, greenhouses, um, most people aren't going to be farming, so they don't really need to care about seasons. So um, the, the time reference in that sense, it alters our relationship to how time is and how time works and how long things take to happen. Uh, and it just pushes our time preference into sort of the nano present. All that matters is like, what, what, what frappuccino am I going to get at Starbucks? And that's not a healthy way to think about time, uh, especially when you're in terms of civilization, because you just, as I said, you focus on what's coming tomorrow and not, you know, the dam, you know, the dam that's holding all the water back works, it will work tomorrow. So why do we need to worry about it? You know, uh, the greatest example of this is the fact that all the rebar, the, the steel rebar, which goes into concrete to support it, oxidizes after 50 to 70 years. So it all uh, expands, breaks all the concrete. I mean, that's just not good foresight, right? And we're still doing that. We still know that that happens. All the concrete in 70, 50, 50 70, 100 years, roughly. So I know that sounds very hazy. Lo loads and loads of concrete structures are just like, oh, we need to repair these. Why? Oh, we knew that if we did this, that it would break. Um, um, in terms of eschatology, you know, I think on a personal human level, what we could say about that, our avoidance of suffering and death has just changed that. We live in the present until the moment we die. So there isn't this like overwhelming sort of drama, which we should relate to in a Heideggerian sense. Um, I think everything's just so atomized that you, it's time has become atomized that you just live, as I said, in the nano present. Um, I don't really know what you're alluding to with, with the eschatology with accelerationism though. Mm. I was just trying to bring in another level of, of sort of another occult angle to the discussion, meaning, you know, that outside of time, that there is perhaps an event happening that is manifesting throughout history, right? Because, you know, if time is a feature of human perception, linear time, the way that we perceive it, right? Before, present, and future, then maybe outside of time, we could theorize that Eden and Armageddon are simultaneous events that occur, you know, all the time, quote unquote, right? Because it's so hard mm. to talk about these things. And, and the whole point of bringing that up, might there be an event pulling us at the end of history, like, you know, Yef Delhard Chardon um, mentions with the Omega point, or... Is it that, like, implying directionality? I'm not even going to go into, like, how it's going to get resolved, right? I'm just talking about the directionality and the attraction. Yeah, I mean, so... Might, there, might that be the case or maybe not? Well, there's certain... The, Nietzsche's theory on this, which has sort of apparently been disproven by uh, contemporary cos cosmology, uh, is the idea that, obviously, if there is going to be an event in time... Sorry, if there was going to be a cataclysmic event where the universe ended, then because of the way time is, that would have already happened. Um, apparently, this has been disproven by cosmology. Land obviously abides by this idea of, you know, capitalism building itself in the future uh, because it doesn't abide by nonlinear time. And if there is going to be a singularity and intelligence explosion, then to what extent could we 
say that the intelligence explosion wouldn't be subjectively beholden to the same temporality as humans and therefore basically this intelligence would make its first point of call to go back in time and make sure that it's born um and apparently we're beginning to see this with quantum computers who were these uh, i talked about this with eric wago but he didn't really see what i was getting at but um because he was coming at it from a different angle um but there's quantum computers now which can apparently uh the effect can affect the cause of its own effect right so this to me is a huge huge philosophical problem um because in what sense is this quantum computer as a subject perceiving time how is it dealing with time because you know we <laughs> there's something where the, the effect the effect can affect the cause of its own effect um so at that point phenomenology is a bit broken because you have a new subject there which we really need and as soon as you make it it's dangerous because that can do mm -hmm. things which we can't um so i think once you begin to develop things like that then the possibility of there being a, a future event would imply that there is a determinism but only for biological creatures which are subjectively beholden to linear time mm -hmm. um but i don't think that's something to be too depressed about I would say, just just to to wrap it up, that mm -hmm. maybe there were there was always another subject, there was always another cows, uh, and we're touching it through the threshold. Exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't even disagree with that. <laughs> a little bit of a purpose there, maybe. Um, I don't know how I feel about. I've never really spoken about purpose and meaning because I don't struggle with the question like I don't, it doesn't matter to me either way i'm i'm quite happy like plodding along so you know what i mean like yeah i know it's a really cheap quote by Camus. the whole like should i kill myself or should i have another cup of coffee but <laughs> and it's great when you're 16 shouldn't be talking about it when i'm 26 but um i think it's a, a sort of a you know you can think about these things and i don't i think it's dangerous to go too too far all the time um you know even Deleuze and Guattari, as i've said um, retain, retain, they say, retain some territory. Um, but in what sense, like, this is the, the big problem for me with levels of communication is like saying, oh, everything's just atoms. So it's like, oh, you love your dog? Oh, it's just chemical reactions. It's atoms. Oh, you're enjoying that sandwich? It's just chemical reactions. And I know it's super cheap to mention this moment, but in The Matrix with Cypher, and I think I sort of really adore Cypher as a character because he's, he says, you know, like, I'm, he knows he's in The Matrix. <laughs> But, and he even says, oh, I know that this steak is just chemical reactions, whatever, but it doesn't matter. And that's, a, you know, that's a, like an almost a Cezian point in the matrix, which is he doesn't want to conflate those two levels of communication. You know, there's no point eating a lovely meal and thinking at the same time, oh man, what about the heat death of the universe? Or what about the, you know, this is just a top atoms moving within whatever I am phenomenologically because they're just two different levels of communication. Just enjoy your sandwich. And that was where I sort of say about meaning and purpose is like, you can go into these things, but don't mix two levels of communication. And people are doing that a lot with politics, you know, so like everything's become political. Um, and it's really easy to draw, to, to draw in that level of communication on tech everyday life and it's super dangerous because you end up becoming extremely neuropathic um 
you know, like even going for a walk is sort of this political standpoint in relation to like, um, I don't know, your carbon output or something. It's like, oh, you're biking to work. You can't just bike to work. There has to be these other levels coming in. And I'd just say like, try just retain things on that level of communication. Like, like, oh yeah, I mean, it's a cheap example, but having a sandwich, like just have your sandwich. <laughs> like you don't need to worry about meaning and purpose all the time. Like what, what's that gonna do? <laughs> I'm glad that we got back here because one of the things I wanted to say is you dickhead, you made me feel bad about having an avocado for breakfast, but actually no, you know, I can just enjoy it and not feel bad about being a woman. No, I mean, well, but, no, yeah, <laughs> no, was, no, was, but, no, no, I get it. I get it. But I, but that, that's an interesting point because you had your avocado and you enjoyed it. And that's one thing that's going on, but like in what sense, I know it's sort of defeatist, but in what sense is you suddenly going like, man, this had to be flown here and cooled and I've got it. Like you've got it now, you know, I don't, that sort of neurotic, like guilt that's applied. I just, you know, you're, you're not responsible for the mass technological civilization and it's baby steps, like just alter the way you think about things. Um, I know, like I don't, <laughs> don't feel guilty about eating an avocado. <laughs> It reminds me of something uh, a guy, Daniel and I know, uh, said to me, um, Thomas Hamelrick, who's a, he's a professor who lives in, uh, in Copenhagen. But we were talking at one point about, about animals and the meat industry and vegetarianism and how horrible factory farming is and mm. whether or not it was an ethical choice to not eat meat. And he comes around and goes like, yes, it is fucking horrible. So what? Like, you know, like stare it in the face. Don't try and get away from it. Like, this is what we are. This is what we do. And that like, kind of opened this really interesting point to me. Where I was like, huh, like maybe there's actually an ethical stance in both being critical of what we do, but also not taking oneself away and being like, do you know what? I'm one of the good boys and girls who doesn't touch that stuff. Like maybe actually part of the ethical thing is to touch it, to know within yourself that you are actually part of this machine that does that, even if you be critical of it. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, I saw a funny thing the other day. Uh, it was like a tweet from a vegan who said, like, people were really worried about because of Corona. I think there's going to be a meat shortage from factory farms. And then, you know, the tweet was like, oh, why are you worried about meat shortage? Don't all of you meat eaters buy, you know, locally sourced, organic, homegrown meat or whatever? Like, every, what every meat eater says, like, oh, I get it from my local butcher. I was like, no, you don't. No one does. <laughs> I, I would if it wasn't such a far walk. But um, no, no, I think that's sort of like the best way to deal with a lot of things, which is to deal with the hypocrisy of mm. I, I'm, and I think that it's, that's a healthier way to, to have your relationship, to, to, to cultivate a relationship with modernity is don't completely detach because that's when things can go wrong and you, you, you can't spot your own hypocrisies in relation to the machine. And really the best thing should be like, just try spot and do what you can um, on a personally sort of your own personal mental level, which is, you know, super hammy advice, but it's best to do. I mean, like mm. I wrote, wrote a piece this morning about repairing things. Um, and that's something that's gone. And I think that's huge. That's huge for so many reasons. Um, I mean, when was the last time you heard someone say like, I'm repairing my washing machine because it's cheaper to buy a new washing machine or get one on finance. I mean, people rent washing machines. That's depressing, man. Sorry if you rent washing machine. 
Um, but the point with that is, is like, it, you know, that's the first point of call is just throw the old one away and get a new one, not repair it. And I think, you know, there's credentialism there. That no one wants to repair things themselves because they're worried they'll break it or whatever. It's like, it's already broken, you know? Um, and you just end up losing skills. And I think that's the mentality we need to get back to is not being too worried about the judgments put upon you for trying to do other things. Like, you know, maybe, you know, you did fix your own car, wing mirror, and it's a bit dodgy or something like that. Or, you know, you did, you did fix your bike and it didn't go all that well. But it's like, you know, feel, feel comfortable trying to sort those things out without like some third party new item developed by modernity. Great. Um, oh, and I don't know if you have anything else to add. Otherwise, I think this is probably a good place to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, my only final thought was that was that reminded me of something you said, Daniel, quite frequently, that time is the only currency that doesn't scale. And with this bizarre point where many of us in wealthy Western countries have seemed to have more accumulated capital than time as a currency. And so it creates this weird dynamic where we will buy new things rather than repair the things because it would take more time to learn and then repair a washing machine than it is to just go on Amazon or whatever it is and order a new one. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, but it also means we're stuck in this weird state of constantly relating to commodities and products in their kind of platonic ideal sense at any time that iPhone gets a crack in its screen, well, it's time for another new iPhone because the ideal is gone. And I'm kind of curious. It's not democratic. Hmm. But yeah, perhaps this is a place to wrap up guys. Yeah. Unless you guys have any more final thoughts. It's all good for me. All good. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Uh, fucking good having you, man. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.